The first flight for space launch system is delayed. A ton of exoplanet news, including a direct image of an exoplanet from Webb. Using Starlink with just your phone and gravity is still constant after all these years. All that and more in this week's episode of Space Bites. Hi everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy news journalist for over 20 years. This is our Space Bites. Just short, bite-sized segments about all the really cool, breaking space and astronomy news stories happening this week. All right, let's get into the stories. Webb's first direct image of an exoplanet. Now, if you remember back in July, we got that big dump of data from NASA pictures and data coming from the James Webb Space Telescope. We saw these really cool images of nebulae, of galaxies, and we got some funny squiggly lines that apparently indicated water vapor in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. But a chart does not a picture make. And so here we go, the first actual image of an exoplanet taken by James Webb. Now, other telescopes have been able to take pictures of exoplanets in the past. In fact, we've probably done this about 40 times. So this is a technique that is very well known to science. And so one planet in particular, which was discovered back in 2017, became the target for James Webb to see how well its optics can do above and beyond the ground-based observatories that were used to take these images in the past. All right, I want to manage your expectations here first. The planet is about nine times the mass of Jupiter. The star is much more massive, much hotter, and much younger than the sun. No part of this is habitable. The planet takes about 630 years to go around the star. It orbits at a distance of 92 astronomical units, which is way beyond the distance of Pluto. So don't get your hopes up that we're seeing Earth 2.0 here. We're seeing this giant mega Jupiter at an incredible distance no part of this is, is very habitable, but it demonstrates that Webb can indeed see planets. The star is about 10,000 times brighter than the planet, and so Webb was able to use its coronagraph on board to block the light from the star and reveal the light of the planet. It looked at the planet with seven different filters and was able to see the planet in each one of those. So it is an unambiguous sign that it is definitely seeing the planet. Now, this isn't going to be the last time. I mean, we've been talking about this for years now. One of the goals of Webb is to study exoplanets directly and to be able to provide information about their atmospheres. So. This is the first picture from Webb of an exoplanet, but definitely not the last. Artemis 1 delayed. This is my this is my shocked face right here. Artemis 1 was delayed. Now, Space Launch System was supposed to launch on August 29th after decades of development in various forms to the final form that we saw now and what a surprise, it was delayed. And I mean, I'm not surprised, not not even the slightest bit surprised. In fact, anyone who's been asking me, do you think it's going to launch? My answer is no, no, it won't launch. It's going to be delayed. Interesting side note, I went to go and see the second to last launch of the space shuttle and flew down to Cape Canaveral, went out and saw the space shuttle and it was delayed. It was delayed for a month. 
And so I had to fly home and I never watched the space shuttle launch because of a delay. One does not simply book a return flight from a rocket launch, especially the first time that vehicle ever launches. So what happened? Well, before the spacecraft launches, needs to cool down the four RS-25 engines to about negative 250 Celsius. And NASA was keeping track of the cool down of the engines and three were going according to plan, but one was stuck about 30 to 40 degrees warmer than the rest of the engines, not cold enough for it to be able to launch. So they ended up having to scrub the launch. Now, after this, they went through all of the information and it looks like, in fact, it wasn't the engine itself. The engine probably was the right temperature, but it was the sensor that was monitoring the temperature of the engine. So the launch has been pushed back. The next launch window is on September 3rd. And if that doesn't work, they're going to do a launch window on September 5th. But there is a hard deadline at September 5th. At that point, that's sort of the last launch window that SLS can actually reach the moon. And so then they have to wait another month. They have to wait for the moon to orbit the Earth and come back into the right position that they can launch again. And that's too long. A lot of SLS is operating on batteries right now. So they're going to have to bring it back to the vehicle assembly building, plug everything back in again, and wait for that launch window to open up. So hopefully, if all goes well, it will launch September September 3rd, as late as September 5th. But, you know, like, if I was a betting man, I would guess that we're going to have to wait probably until October. There's going to be some other issues they're going to need to sort out. And just another month, just to really double check and fix everything will be great. So uh, if you're out in Florida waiting in the summer heat for SLS to launch and it delays and delays and delays, uh, that's just what it takes to watch a rocket launch. An ocean world exoplanet. More planet news, this time using NASA's TESS spacecraft. And so the spacecraft turned up a planet that's orbiting around two stars. And this was sort of quite surprising. And when astronomers made the calculations on the planet, they found that the density of the planet roughly matches the kind of density for the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. So they are about 30% water, which was very surprising. When you think about all of the rocky planets here in the solar system, they're almost entirely rock and metal. And in the case of Earth, there's like a thin amount of water on the surface, but mostly they are balls of rock and metal. And so this planet with 30% water is about 70% larger than the Earth and orbits around these two stars within the habitable zone. So what that means is that the surface of the planet is liquid, not solid ice the way we have with Europa and Enceladus. So imagine like a super Europa, but with a stormy liquid ocean surface. But this is a challenge because in this case, you've got oceans on this planet that are probably dozens, maybe hundreds of kilometers deep. And under the enormous pressure and temperature of water that's stacked up for that amount, the water gets weird. It turns into these dense forms of water, weird exotic ices. And then far below that, you actually have the solid surface, the rocky metal surface of the planet. And so the big question is, is there any way that this 
material can get from the bottom of the ocean up to the top where the sunlight is to help for life to be able to use it. And this is actually an unsolved question in exoplanet astronomy and astrobiology is as we discover these water world planets that have kilometer deep oceans, can they have life on them? More information is necessary. A planet shifting in and out of the habitable zone. The habitable zone here in the solar system, that's the place where liquid water can form on the surface of a planet. And actually, the habitable zone is a lot wider than you might think. It extends from roughly the orbit of Venus through the orbit of Earth out to the orbit of Mars. And so theoretically, depending on the planet, if it has the right atmosphere, it could have liquid water on its surface everywhere from Venus out to Mars. Now, of course, Venus is incredibly hot, no liquid water on its surface. Mars is incredibly cold and dry, no water on its surface, but Earth does. But if you moved Earth closer or farther from the sun, it could still be habitable and still have liquid water on its surface. Astronomers have found a planet that moves in and out of its habitable zone. Now, this is only possible because the star is a red dwarf star. It's very small. It has a very small habitable zone. And so the planet drifts in and out of this very tiny zone very quickly. The planet has about four times the mass of the Earth, but it only takes about 11 days to go around the star. So it's very unlike Earth. Around a red dwarf, very short year, but and floats in and out of the habitable zone. What's really cool about this discovery, it was made with a new infrared instrument on board the Subaru telescope. So the technique that was used to find this planet was the radial velocity method. We measure the pull of gravity from the planet as it pulls the star back and forth. And we can measure the literally the speed of the star as it's moving towards and away from us. And normally this is done in visible light. So it's done with the Hubble Space Telescope or really large telescopes here on Earth. But with these smaller stars, these red dwarf stars, they're cooler and less visible in the visible wavelength, but more visible in the infrared wavelength. And so the Subaru had an infrared spectrometer that was able to measure the movement of this star back and forth with a high degree of accuracy. And this is really exciting because there are a lot of red dwarf stars out there and having a new technique for being able to find planets around these red dwarfs is great. And of course, once the planet has been discovered with a ground-based observatory, then it can be handed off to James Webb, which is the perfect machine to make these observations with even more accuracy. So sort of a really cool pipeline of exoplanet discoveries. Voyager 1, fixed. A few weeks ago, I reported that NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft was sending home garbled telemetry data. Although they were still able to communicate with the spacecraft, the information that it was sending home about itself, about its position, its orientation just didn't make sense. And so NASA was trying to figure out what is the problem. It turns out the sensors on board Voyager were using the wrong computer to attempt to communicate the telemetry back to NASA. And in fact, this computer had been shut down about 12 years ago because it couldn't be relied upon. So it's very bizarre that Voyager was attempting to do this. It's kind of surprising that it was able to go all the way to this point, be able to try and send this data back home, but it didn't actually cause the whole spacecraft to go into safe mode, which is what you would kind of expect for a spacecraft that is sending back this kind of garbled data. But NASA engineers were able to figure out what the problem is, get it to 
use the correct networking equipment on board the spacecraft to be able to send the message home and everything is looking fine again. But to really truly figure out what's gone wrong, they're going to have to go through the data output from Voyager 1 line by line to figure out what the problem is. Now, they're very old spacecraft. And it's not unanticipated that they're going to be running into these and other kinds of problems as they grow older and older. And in a few years, the power levels will be so low that the Voyagers will have to be shut off for good. So enjoy this time that we have with these Voyagers as they last. Soon you'll be able to Starlink with just your phone. Now you probably know that I'm using Starlink to connect to the internet while I'm recording these episodes, doing all my live streams. It's not great, um, but it's the best that I can do living in the middle of a forest. And the way that we communicate with Starlink is we have a dish and it's a fairly large, heavy dish that consumes a ton of power and the dish connects to the internet and then connects to my Wi-Fi router and then spreads the internet around my area and I'm able to connect to the internet. But wouldn't it be cool? if you could just be anywhere on Earth and you could be communicating with satellites with your phone. And this is the plan. This week, SpaceX and T-Mobile announced that they're planning a mobile phone version of Starlink, where anywhere in the United States, you'll be able to connect to Starlink and be able to send and receive phone calls, text messages. It won't be fast enough to do internet browsing. It can only provide two to four megabits per cell. So it'll be able to provide to everybody in the area about that speed. So it may allow phone calls, text messages, but you're not gonna be able to do a lot of heavy internet browsing today. But who knows what will happen in the future. And we're not talking about those giant satellite phones that people take up to the top of Mount Everest or they have on a ship. This is just your regular mobile phone. You'll be able to use your existing smartphone and instead of connecting to your Wi-Fi or connecting to your cell phone tower, you'll connect to a satellite. Now, this technology is only going to work with a much larger version of Starlink, the version two that's being planned. These are probably going to be launched on Starship, although theoretically they could launch a bit of a slimmer down version on a Falcon 9 rocket. We've actually seen this technology tested before. There was a company called Link that was testing out a CubeSat. And as it was flying through space, it was attempting to communicate and connect with people's mobile phones on Earth. And it was able to do that and actually send text messages as it was flying overhead. So theoretically, I mean, it's just space, right? It's a direct line to the satellite. It's just that it's very far, but it does seem kind of inevitable that we'll get to this point where you're able to use your cell phone anywhere on earth. As long as you have clear view to the sky, you're going to be online. Gravity still constant. So astronomers have a puzzling mystery, and this has been called the crisis in cosmology. Although I don't like the term crisis in cosmology, like, like as if astronomers are freaking out and losing their mind when actually they're super excited. This is so much fun because a lot of the established theories that they have are locked in and they're having trouble finding places where they can try and extend their theories and try to really understand what's happening with the universe. So the crisis in cosmology 
is this measurement of the expansion rate of the universe. And astronomers have measured this expansion at several times. But the two key ones are they've measured the expansion using Cepheid variables, which are relatively close. And this was actually a technique that Hubble used to first measure the expansion rate of the universe. And then the other method is from the cosmic microwave background radiation. And so the numbers are roughly close to each other, but they're not exactly the same. And the problem is, is that the two measurements have been done with such accuracy that the error bars don't overlap. And so astronomers are very certain about the Cepheid variable measurement, and they're very certain about the cosmic microwave background radiation. And it's not like they overlap. And so you would guess it's somewhere in between the two measurements do not overlap. Why? One possibility is that gravity hasn't remained constant throughout the age of the universe. And so if the force of gravity has been changing, then it would be exactly expected that the rate of the expansion of the universe would be changing over after all this time. So astronomers went to try to check that try to see if they can confirm or disprove if gravity is changing. So what they did is they used telescopes to observe about 100 million galaxies at varying distances. And they measured the shape of those galaxies as they were lensed by blobs of dark matter in front of those galaxies. And they were able to track at different time frames of the universe, how were those galaxies getting their shapes modified by the dark matter. If gravity was changing over time, you would see the changes in the shape at different time slices at the age of the universe. And what astronomers found is that after all this time, gravity has remained precisely the same. And so it's unlikely that a changing strength of gravity is the cause for the crisis in cosmology. But there's still a million other possibilities that dark matter doesn't work the way we think it does, that dark energy is changing over time, that the fundamental methods that are being used to calculate the distances are wrong, or Einstein's theory of general relativity doesn't hold at certain times in the universe or something. There's something else out there that is going to help explain this. And as I said, astronomers are excited to figure out what is going on. And it's, it's really one of the most thrilling times in recent memory for for cosmology and astronomy. It's really exciting. The best way to answer this question even better is with two upcoming missions. There's the European Space Agency's Euclid mission and NASA's Nancy Grace Roman Telescope. Both of those are going to be charting the amount of dark energy in the universe and really try to get a sense of how the expansion rate of the universe has been changing over time. And maybe that will provide an answer, but maybe not. All right. Now, if you want any more details on any of the stories that we talked about today, you can find them all in the descriptions down below. And if you want even more information about all of these stories, as well as dozens of other stories, you're going to want to check out my weekly email newsletter. I write this every week. It goes out to about 55,000 people. There's no ads, totally free. You can sign up. Just go to universetoday.com slash newsletter. If you want an audio version of everything we do, you can sign up with our podcast. Just search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And actually, there's a lot of additional content that's in the podcast that isn't available on 
the videos or on the website. So you're definitely going to want to check that out. Just go to universetoday.com slash podcast, or like I said, search on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Andrew M. Gross, who supports us at the master of the universe level. Everybody's support means the universe to us. All right, those were all the stories this week. I'll see you next week. But remember, Summer Hiatus is now officially over. I'm back with live streams in September, as well as interviews all through September. So if you were missing out on all of that space information, it's all coming back in the next week. All right, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>